Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today and in two weeks, we're bringing you some folks who are active in the March for Our Lives Sensible Gun Reform Movement. If you've caught my drift, I don't think facts are enough to fuel a transformation, though they should always be part of the process. So we try each week to bring you inspirational workers for a better world. The folks we're talking to today and the week after next are not household names. They are not the amazing teens from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I do think that those teens are absolutely amazing. But these are folks who are amazing in their own ways. Today I'm going to speak to three different participants of the various March for Our Lives gatherings, and all of these happen to be adults, but each has an interesting story of their own. In two weeks, two of the three people we'll be talking to will be high school seniors, but what I hope you'll focus on will be what has empowered and transformed each of these guests to be a part of fixing what's wrong with the world. We'll start by a visit with a longtime favorite of mine, Myron Buckles, now retired from decades of teaching history at the high school level, and one of those willing souls who made the thousand-mile commute over to Washington, D.C. to be part of the 800,000-strong gathering there on March 24th. Myron Buckles joins me in person here today. Myron, it's good to have you back for Spirit in Action. It's good to be back with you, Mark. A few days ago, you were in Washington, D.C. for the March for Our Lives. That's quite a trek. Do you still having a time zone hangover from that travel? No. My friend, Dr. Chisholm, suggested that we go about a week before the event, and I said, sure. And it's a quick trip out there and back on that big silver bird. So why would you make the trip in any case? There's a, certainly at least expense related to it. Do you have estimates on the crowd size, and why did you make the trip? When Doc brought it up, we talked about it, and by the press reports of the success of the organizers, we knew it was going to be a huge march and possibly history-changing, and we just thought we would go be a part of it. As it turned out, it was. The numbers vary, as they always do. 700, 800,000 of my closest friends showed up. Some of your listeners will know that I am very tall, and I always say it comes in handy in a crowd, but it matters not in a crowd that large. All I saw was the backs of a lot of people's heads during the time when we congregated on Pennsylvania Avenue, and they had set up big screens and a PA system, so we could not directly see the stage, but we heard everything and uh, saw everything, and uh, it was quite the experience. And for our listeners, the Doc Chisholm he's referring to is Tom Chisholm. He is a member of Veterans for Peace, served in the military. This is a march for our lives. It's about guns. What's your take? You have a daughter who served in Iraq, just separated recently from the military. What's your attitude about guns, civilian ownership of guns? And as a history teacher, you had so many years of seeing what was true in our country. What's your take on what's the proper role of guns in civilian population? Well, as the proponents of the Second Amendment like to point out, there are numerous reasons for having a weapon. What's happened is 
the military-style weapons with the almost unlimited magazines in the hands of the wrong people cause so much carnage that my argument is that there is room to have what the Second Amendment says well-regulated. I always point out that the First Amendment does not contain those words, yet I know my speech is regulated. I cannot lie, cannot yell fire in a crowded theater just to see people run. The words well-regulated are not in the First Amendment, but yet we know that our behaviors are regulated. The Second Amendment actually contains the words, and that's the sign that I made for my little contribution was, quote, well-regulated, unquote, please. There is simply no need for military-style weapons in the civilian population with virtually unlimited magazines. Because you're a history teacher, you probably understand much better than the bulk of us the genesis of both the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the the Ten Amendments that were added to it right after it was passed. And, of course, the Second Amendment, while regulated militia and can infringe the rights they have weapons, why is that an amendment? It's not in the main body of the Constitution. And what was the intent, as we can tell from the testimony of the founding fathers? Why put that in there at all? Well, there's a couple of different interpretations of what happened. One of them, of course, is the Revolutionary War and the Minutemen and the need to be armed to defend yourself against tyranny. Another interpretation is the Southerners who were so involved in the creation of those documents knew that their well-regulated citizenry was to control the slave populations that outnumbered them in many places where they lived. And uh, contrary to lots of popular belief, uh, slaves were not happy about being slaves and needed to be controlled. The fact that we were a frontier society and almost everybody, as soon as you moved a little bit west of the population centers, were armed to hunt food mainly and shoot Indians you know, you have a number of different possibilities there for why we gravitated towards having a Second Amendment. That said, nobody is really opposed to any of that, minus the controlling of the slaves, I suppose, argument. Well, it's the hunting argument. Nobody's really truly opposed to the hunting argument on a large scale where it's actually going to change things. What has happened over the past 20 years since we've lost the controls that we have is the proliferation of these military-style weapons that were only designed for one purpose, and that's to kill as many human beings as you can in the shortest amount of time possible. When I was a school teacher, I, I had a visual test for my students when this topic came up, because one of the arguments that makes me chuckle is people can kill each other using a fork and a knife and a hammer. And, of course, that is true. I can stab you to death with a writing utensil. I put those pictures up on the screen and I asked my students what was the intent of these devices. And, of course, it's to build, it's to eat, and so on and so forth. Very obvious. And then I put up a picture of an AR-15, M-16, what have you. And I said, what was the intent of this? And it's not rocket science. You just look at them and you know what they're supposed to do. So, you know, the uh, some of the arguments I find so confusing. The argument that you have to defend yourself against the government is interesting, and my somewhat snarky response to that one is the British weren't using drones at Bunker Hill. And if you think that you're going to defend yourself against a modern-day armed government with your single-assault-style weapon, that's not a society in which I want to live. 
That's the bottom line. I know there are movies out there that depict people in rebellion and so on, and we know there's plenty of rebellions going on all over the world. But the bottom line for me is I don't want to live there. So we need to have some kind of civilian and reasonable control before we devolve into that status, because once we do, it's not someplace I want to live. Unlike me, Myron, I don't think you're technically a pacifist in the same way I am. You know, I've got this extra Quaker religious layer. So I think that you and I look at it somewhat differently. But we are both consistently anti-war, recognizing that war is not a winner for anybody. Under what conditions does it make sense to you to personally have a weapon? I understand the self-defense aspect of weapons at the very basic level. I would like to live in a society where that wasn't part of the conversation, but I think it's reasonable at some level with really good training and knowledge of how to care for such a tool. Hunting was something I participated in as a young person. I didn't continue for a lot of reasons. One, it was really expensive and time-consuming. And we know by statistic that the number of hunters in the country has actually gone down. Other societies that have deep hunting background have plenty of access to hunting-style weapons, and they don't have the same problems as we do. And nobody needs an AR-15 with a 30-round banana clip to hunt a deer. I have a friend who talked of how he taught his sons to hunt deer. And when they went out when they were young and just beginning, he gave them one bullet and said that, one, I expect you to hit what you're shooting at and don't waste it and uh, be very careful, obviously, because you get one shot. So I I hear these stories of needing the 30 rounds in a clip, uh, the Aurora, Colorado shooting, the shooter there used a 50-round drum that thankfully jammed, or that theater, which, by the way, I went to a movie in not too long ago. I was at that theater. The death toll there would have been you know, multiple times higher. So that's the question for me, is what do you need to do? I have a friend who hunts ducks, and told me that you have three shots in your shotgun when you go hunting ducks. You can't have more. And I think that is pretty true all across the country, because I seem to remember something like that from my youth. That's a reasonable thing for me and I don't have a problem with it. And I don't think most Americans do either, because most Americans, quite frankly, don't think about it very often. So my appeal is for some reasonable regulation and having people have access to these military-style assault weapons. If something bad happens in their life, they do a lot of damage. There's another issue, too, and that I hear all the time, and that's that so many people are ex-military, and therefore they are trained with weapons. Many people don't realize that soldiers on a base aren't carrying unless they are practicing or going into combat. They simply don't allow it. When you bring your weapon back from a training exercise, you'd have to demonstrate that it is unloaded with no round in the chamber by pulling the trigger into a barrel of sand. And then the weapon is stored separate from the bullets because the commanding officers know exactly how destructive these things are. We just recently had a former senator talk about CPR. I asked my friend Doc about CPR with somebody that's hit with an AR-15 round, and he just kind of grinned sadly and said, no, CPR isn't what you need when you're hit with a high-velocity bullet. It just comes back to a reasonable amount, that well-regulated line. I think is is very practical. The military is regulated. The militia is regulated. We uh, need to have that same regulation with our civilian population. 
Myron, uh, the Second Amendment speaks of the well-regulated militia, and I think a lot of people do not understand the difference between militia, civilian, and the military. I think back at during the founding of this country, there was no common acceptance of the idea of having a standing military. So militia meant something different than it does today. Could you explain what militia means translated for the 21st century that we're living in versus the 18th century when the Second Amendment was written? The term itself creates some controversy and much discussion on this entire issue because what truly is a militia? Well, we have citizens who are not in the National Guard, who are not in the police force, who organize themselves into a militia. Well, Timothy McVeigh, the terrible bomber at Oklahoma City, was a member of a militia. I know people who have considered themselves members of a particular militia of citizens. And based on the past history of the Minutemen from way back in the days of the Revolutionary War era, when that kind of made sense. Now we have well-regulated uh, militia. If you want to participate in this type of training, the National Guard joining the various police forces seems to be a more modern interpretation of it as far as I'm concerned. Again, all these arguments that are brought up about needing to defend yourselves from criminals, needing to defend yourselves from the government, and this idea that Things happen so quickly, and if I don't have my weapon, I won't be able to do that. As I said earlier, it's not a society in which I want to live. I think we should work for some other solutions besides believing that I need to arm myself with military-style weapons out of fear that something bad is going to happen to me if I don't. So it's a debatable argument, uh, a very hotly debated issue. What is a militia? And you have the 1776 version and the current version and all kinds of arguments in between. I wanted to get in that background. Folks were speaking with Myron Buckles. He was at the March for Our Lives on March 24th. He's sitting with me here today. I haven't actually heard the stories yet of your adventure. What would you like to share of your experience of that trip, Myron? The most interesting memory for me coming back was when Doc Chisholm and I sat down in the steps of the archives building because we got to the Pennsylvania Avenue area very early in the morning to avoid the rushes on the subway, realizing that downtown Washington, D.C. is basically an armed camp and the irony of being at a gun regulation demonstration in the middle of an armed camp wasn't lost on me including the fact there was a armored Humvee with a machine gun turret sitting across the street from us. I found that very sobering. The 50, I think it was a 50 caliber, it was less than that. Uh, I hope your listeners forgive me, but it's a high-powered mounted machine gun. It was just scary at one level. What is that supposed to do? Some of the people, young people that were interviewed the next day in the paper commented on that, that it did seem overkill the helicopters circling overhead, and so on, and just another example of how we have devolved into a society of fear and believing that we have to be surrounded by weapons in order to stay safe. And, of course, there were no acts of violence or anything that took place, and it wasn't because people were afraid of being shot. It was because most people are not violent most of the time, and this was a very peaceful protest. I had another interesting experience because... Doc and I were there so early, 
we thought we would go into the archives and see the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and check out what was going on in the archives before we ventured down the street and joined the mass of people. And we stood in line for just a few minutes because we were there very early as the doors were opening. And we got up to the security measures because you can't use the front door of the archives anymore because of security. So you have to go in through a side door and And, of course, we were not allowed in because Doc had an 8.5 by 11 picture taped to his jacket of a red slash through an AR-15, and I was carrying a small cardboard sign that said, well-regulated, please. And we were told that no protest signs were allowed in the archives and turned away. I didn't think quickly enough to fold my sign in half and stuff it under my jacket, but we went back the next day. And we went back to the archives, and upon leaving, I saw the same guard, and I, I asked him if I would have been able to stuff my sign under my coat. And he said, no, he saw it, so I would have to go out. And then I said, I find it a little ironic that the Declaration of Independence can be argued to be one giant protest sign, and I was not allowed to go see a protest sign carrying a protest sign. He had no comment to that, and we left. But the size of the crowd, you know, the wonderful speakers, and they were all young, and they kept it that way, and that's one thing that truly gives me hope is that the young people involved in this are simply not afraid of speaking up. They have proved themselves incredibly eloquent and capable of taking on such an issue and leading old dogs like me in a direction that I think would be beneficial. Were there any of the speakers, presenters, who particularly struck you or particularly moving to you? Well, many of your listeners will have seen Emma Gonzalez go silent for what seemed like an eternity. And it didn't take me too long to figure out what she was doing. As she said, she went silent for the six minutes and 20 seconds it took for the gunman to kill 17 people. Very moving, very touching. But all of the speakers, it it was long. It was about two and a half hours long. And one of the side benefits of Doc and I being late to get to the mass of people is that we ended up standing on a small patch of grass off the side on the curb. So I didn't have to stand for five and a half hours on concrete, which had that happened, I may have needed a ride out of there. So we had a more comfortable place to stand. It was long, and every speaker, they were just fun to listen to. And it was a little difficult in the crowd because if you've seen the clips on television, the microphones, of course, are picked up directly and there is no reverberation and echo as there is in a concrete jungle like Washington, D.C. with all the speakers set up all over the place. And so there was this constant reverb and you had to pay attention to hear exactly what was being said, not quite so clearly as what comes through on the television. But they made their point incredibly well and had representatives from Chicago and from the recent Maryland shooting and young people who really, really spoke up. And I was incredibly proud to be there and listen. What do you make, Myron, of the fact that these are young people? I saw a post, I think it was via Facebook or something, that the founders of our country, the so-called founding fathers, they were... 20 and younger or something at the time of the revolution? You are correct. The fear of young people leading this issue is another interesting thing to me because of the basis of your question. I used to remind my students that Martin Luther King was only 39 when he died. And so when you look at when he started his activity and taking a leadership role, He is in the great tradition of young people standing up fearless in the face of overwhelming opposition 
and leading the charge. The only picture of a poster that I wish I would have taken was of a man who was clearly older, sitting on the curb as we were walking out, and he had a photograph on his poster. It was a photograph of the reflecting pool. And it was a massive anti-war demonstration in Vietnam in 1970. And on his picture, he had written, I was here, and drew a line down into the mass of people. And I thought, how cool is that? As uh, he apparently kept some of his ideology from being a young person. But young people were instrumental in bringing attention to the stupidity of Vietnam. One of the things that popped up on my cell phone was a little history thing that I get. And on March 24th, 1965, it just so happened that was the first teach-in on the Vietnam War. And here we are at March 24th, 2018, and having young people raise serious issues and take some tremendous backlash from the powers that be for being too young and not experienced enough and trying to dictate legislation and all the things that they're being attacked by. It's a long tradition of us uh, having young people take the lead. And like I said earlier, I was proud to be able to watch it. One of the accusations from older generations is that young people aren't involved the way we were back in the 1960s and that uh, there's a general level of apathy. Uh, People are just interested in their computer games and their phones and not what's going on in real life. I imagine you got a different view on that by being there. It's certainly something I've complained about over the past couple of decades. One of my observations as being a high school teacher during so much of the second part of the long Iraq war is that the quickest way for me to get students' eyes to roll up in the back of their head was to bring up the war. It always struck me as that they really didn't want to hear about it. And it bothered me, the level of apathy, level of apathy amongst the voting age population. Once you get to be 18, you are in that age group that votes the least of all the other age groups. And if anything gives me hope for the future, it's the sense that this could be a turning point in that apathy. And we have some fires that are being lit under young people all across the country that could lead to some serious change. And there's a couple of really hot button issues out there for young people. And one of them, of course, is this weapons issue that's become so obvious. And the other one is net neutrality with the young people on there, organizing tools, social media, and so on. Any talk of restricting that or limiting that is going to create the possibility of having a serious interest amongst young people to end this apathy. So I'm hopeful for the future. And one of the big reasons is the sense that there's some involvement amongst our young people, and that's a very good thing. The next step, I hope, continues on the way because there's a long history, even in Wisconsin back in 2011, where people rose up to try and protect the good of the common people, I think. But it can fritter out because bureaucracy can often outweigh you. I'm hoping that doesn't happen in this case. And thanks to you and to Tom Chisholm and to many young people who led this thing, I have great hope for the future. So thank you so much, Myron. And of course, being well-versed in history, one of the things that I thought was the young people who began to study and speak out against the Vietnam War, it was seven years before the war actually ended. And historically, of course, there's some merit. It takes time to make major changes in this country. So we'll hang in there and see what happens. Thanks to Myron Buckholz for his contribution to the astounding energy around the effort for the kind of sensible reforms that will move us to be a never-again country. 
Myron, as I told you earlier, is retired from some decades as a high school history teacher, so he's got the expertise in both this country's history and in face-to-face dealing with students. And I've had him frequently here as a guest for Spirit in Action. This Northern Spirit Radio production website, northernspiritradio.org, complete with links, stations, where we're syndicated, 12 and 3 quarters years of our programs, a place for you to post comments, and I really, really love hearing from you, and our donate button, which is the only way this full-time work can be sustainable. Click donate and help us after you support your local community radio station. Those stations are supercharged energy for a vital community. Start out by donating to them from your hands and from your wallet. And now on to the second of three guests today about the transforming energy around gun safety. In two weeks, we'll also be talking to a couple of teens about their part in the game-changing activism of the March for Our Lives movement. Next up is Donna Wagner-Backus, who took part in the march in St. Paul, Minnesota, back on March 24th, with the special feature that she was there as one of the three generations of her family speaking up. Donna Backus joins us today by phone. Donna, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, it's my pleasure, Mark. How easy was it to get your daughter and your granddaughter to go along with you to March for Our Lives? Well, actually, they're the ones who brought it up. I had it in the back of my mind and just hadn't really done anything about it. And my daughter mentioned something. And would I like to go along? Do you know why it mattered to them to go? Yeah, I think our daughter for sure is, you know, I don't want to say anti-Second Amendment because that's not it at all. But she feels that we need to have some standards and some guidelines for gun ownership. And, of course, she has a a stake in it because she has children in school and she worries about their future. And our granddaughter, who is 12, is at the age where she pays attention to the news. I'm sure it bothers her, too, what's happening in the schools. She got a smartphone for her birthday when she turned 12. And sometimes it kind of irritates me when she's on the phone all the time. But I find out that she's actually reading the news. (laughs) Just like we did back when we were 12. Yeah, right. right. (laughs) So, you know, she's pretty aware of what's going on. How did it feel for you, Donna, to have your daughter and your granddaughter with you? I I think you did this at least for not only the March for Our Lives, but for the Women's March uh, right around the time of Donald Trump's inauguration. Yes. So we've done this together twice. It has been a source of great pride to have them both with me, marching for the same things, agreeing on issues, especially when you look at the age span. You know, I'm 70, my granddaughter's 12. Most of the time she thinks I'm weird. (laughs) But (laughs) under these circumstances, we've come to a lot of agreement, and that really makes me feel good. One of the things that's different about you, Donna, from a large number of other people is you taught in the public schools here in Eau Claire for some 18 years. You were in a middle school and then in a high school for 14 years, and you were even math coordinator for the Eau Claire district for four years. So you've got a lot of connection to education. What do you think the attitude is in schools? I mean, Eau Claire is an area where there's a lot of hunting, particularly in the fall. It's almost like you have to take a week off of school right around Thanksgiving when hunting season opens for deer. It's very popular. What was the attitude in schools that you could see related to arms? 
Well, you have to keep in mind that I've been out of the schools for 15 years, and this whole Second Amendment issue has really come into its own in those 15 years. But I will say this, yes, owning a gun was a common thing for a lot of kids. A lot of kids took the week off, you know, and went deer hunting with their dads. However, the thought of bringing a gun to school or carrying a gun that was before concealed carry. So the whole gun thing was not even a question, really. You know, the hunting thing was traditional, and your guns were put away when it wasn't hunting season, and that was kind of the end of it. I will say this, in the years that I taught, so 33 years or so, we went from having every door in the building open all day long to having one door open in the morning for the kids to enter. And teachers had an ID where they could get into one or two other doors. So, you know, if you parked in the back, you could get in the back door with an ID. That was a huge change. Did you actually end up feeling fear of that when you were in the schools? I mean, math teachers are notoriously hated, I think, by some students. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I never did. To be perfectly honest with you, I always felt safe at work. And I taught some classes where the kids were in and out of jail during the school year. You know, I had some pretty tough kids, but I just never really felt in danger. What's the change in our culture, in our climate, in our schools that makes this necessary? I would say one thing is the change in family structure. You know, more and more kids are coming from homes where there's only one parent and maybe that parent is hardly there. I think that's huge. And the whole gun culture has changed tremendously, this whole Second Amendment thing. And so the gun culture is up front and center And so kids feel that if they're unhappy or they're whatever, you know, that they have this outlet of taking a gun and going and becoming famous or the gun is going to solve their problems. Whereas 25 years ago, that culture of the gun thing just wasn't there. It it wasn't a solution. One more thing about your family now. You're Donna Wagner-Backus, and James Backus is your husband, famous photographer, if people yeah. <laughs> pay attention to these things. I've had him on my show before, and he does some incredible, incredible nature photography. And folks, it's really worth checking it out, and the links are on nordenspiritradio.org. But Donna, at your cabin up north, you have a welcome mat that says, a normal person and a fisherman live here. Uh-huh. I'm thinking you're not the one who's the fisherman. Right. And you know who I got that mat from? No. My (laughs) (laughs) mother-in-law. So Jim is at least a fisher. Is he also a hunter? No, actually he isn't. He owns a couple guns, but they're in a safe. He and I are the only ones who know the combination. And to tell you the truth, I've never even seen them. (laughs) Well, I suppose that if you have to protect yourself from the government, you're not going to be able to get to the guns quickly enough to do it. No. (laughs) Is there any chance that you feel like you need to have weapons so you can protect yourself from the government? I do know where you stand politically. Yeah. No, I don't, quite frankly. 
And to be honest, Mark, I can't say that I've traveled all over the world, but I have traveled extensively, and I have traveled in Europe and South America and the Caribbean area, and I can't say that I ever felt that I was in danger. And again, maybe I'm being naive, maybe I live in a bubble, but I've never felt like I needed to carry a gun in my purse or in my pocket. One of the reasons I marched is that I absolutely refuse, I refuse to accept a new normal where teachers have to carry guns in school and kids have to be afraid to be in school. What do you think would have been the pros or cons of teachers having guns? I don't see a pro at all. The cons, I can mention a couple. First of all, where are you going to keep it safely so you don't have a student who decides to be mad at you that day and grab your gun? Well, you know, Mark, I'm five feet tall and I taught high school. How easy would it be for somebody who was angry enough to overcome me and take the gun, first of all? But on the positive side, Donna, because you're only five foot tall, maybe it'd be harder to hit you. It, you were not that easy of a target. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that, yeah. <laughs> and secondly, what would a stupid handgun do in the face of an assault rifle? Yes. Any other cons that you're thinking of? Well, the other one I can think of is my job as a teacher is to teach kids, period. I shouldn't have to be worrying about protecting them from guns. It's just not part of the job description, and I don't think it ever should be. One more thing. You know I always have this question about spirituality, religion, how this weighs in. Are there religious or spiritual principles that you adhere to that work uh, for or against the whole gun issue and particularly the whole objectives of March for Our Lives? You know, I was raised Catholic, not that I'm a regular churchgoer anymore, but thou shalt not kill. Number one, I'm not fond of war. I realize that sometimes it has to be, you know, and in that case, okay, I'll accept that. But I just feel that, to me, uh, it's all about do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That's really my, my bottom line, and being kind to others and doing the best you can to help other people live a happy life and... Carrying a gun, to me, just does not fit into that scenario. So let's go back one more time, Donna, to the trip that you and your daughter and your granddaughter made to the Twin Cities from Eau Claire, where we both live, which is, you know, 75 miles or so trip, to be part of the 18 or 20,000 folks there. So in the aftermath, it's already been a couple weeks since you were there. What has reverberated with you? your daughter, your granddaughter. Is this going somewhere that is going to be satisfactory to you? A couple things. First of all, I'm just very excited about the young people who are really taking this and running with it, first of all. Secondly, on the opposite side, I wonder about my generation and what happened to our grand ideals of the 60s. You know, apparently a lot of us are voting for people who believe strongly in a strong Second Amendment. So those are two things that bounce around in my brain a lot. I grew up in the eastern part of the state. I'm from a small town, a big family, a lot of people who grew up on the farm, 
and a lot of them are rather conservative. So I had a cousin who posted a few things about the Second Amendment and his right to carry a gun. I responded to his postings in a private message and just told him how I felt, you know, that I wasn't opposed to the Second Amendment, but I feel that, you know, we needed to have some controls. I told him about my bottom line, you know, not having guns in the school and my wanting my grandkids to be safe. And I made probably eight points or so, and I said, I don't want to take your guns away. I know you're a responsible gun owner, but I said, can't we meet somewhere in the middle here where we can all be happy and work towards a safer country? And he actually kind of agreed with me, so I thought, Okay, so from that perspective, maybe somehow, you know, we can go somewhere with this and people can sit down at the table and come to some kind of terms where we can all accept these terms and live in a safer world. Well, that's an aspiration. I think we all could be interested in, and if we can just find the way to pull together. Right. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Donna Wagner-Backus, a resident of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I happen to live. She was part of the March for Our Lives that was held in St. Paul, Minnesota, back on March 24th with her daughter and granddaughter. She was a math teacher for 18 plus 14 plus four years, a lot of years, teaching math in both middle schools and high schools here in Eau Claire. So she has some on-the-ground experience about schools that I think has also been helpful. Helpful. And Donna, just your good work in the community. You've always been such a community activist. And, and even by teaching yoga, I think that you're increasing the peace locally. So thanks for doing all that stuff. And thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun to be on. Donna Wagner-Backus joined us by phone, sharing her contribution to the March for Our Lives as one component of a three-generation witness at the March in St. Paul, Minnesota. We've got one more guest today, and the week after next, we'll have three more guests, including two high school seniors. All the better to feel inspired and hopeful about the future outcome. But today's last guest is Christine Ashley, who is part of the organization On the Ground, hosting participants of the March in Washington, D.C. Christine is Quaker Field Secretary as part of FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, in a building which faces on the Senate offices. It's Christine's job to invite and inspire, and she was going on all cylinders on March 24th for Washington's March for Our Lives. A lesser-known fact, by the way, is that Christine's study and work has included a special emphasis in Tibetan Buddhism, including five years of work in Southeast Asia. And her work with FCNL is all about making this country the better place it could be. Christine Ashley joins us by phone. Christine, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. I am thrilled to be able to share with you and friends some of the, I guess, movement that's happening here in Washington, D.C. and Friends Committee on National Legislation. And I'm amazed that you can even take a half an hour out of your day to speak to me. I know you've always got so many things on the burners. And what role did you have in the March for Our Lives big event that was on March 24th in Washington, D.C.? Well, I am probably one of the examples of a rare Quaker extrovert. You and me both, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
I tend to lean into opportunities where there can be a possibility of people gathering from afar. And I think there are moments that surely we can see in history where there's something that happens when a yearning for change is so deep you know, that there, there may be an opportunity that arises and everybody turns to that moment and, and it's like a, a glimpse of light. And it was clear to me after the shootings in Parkland uh, and the response that was coming from the students, that attention had suddenly refocused on gun violence in this country. And gun violence not just in the school arenas. Gun violence, which is happening in so many different areas of our life. And so it's clear that, you know, the policymakers' failure to pass common sense and responsible legislation in regards to these appalling rates of gun violence in the United States, it was just, we had just come to a enough is enough. And so I basically felt this deep in my heart and went to FCNL and said, I think this is going to be big and we better open our doors and be present. And we better make sure that we are able to lift up not only what kind of legislation we need at this very moment and with this particular terrible tragedy in the school systems, but we need to ask Congress for something that's comprehensive, a gun violence prevention strategy that is looking at the many different ways that deaths are occurring. So including the violence that is happening at the hands of our police interactions with people of color, and including the many different types of gun violence also attached to domestic violence. For me, this is a very long account of where I heard that there was a cry for something to happen and people were needing to hear voices from the wilderness and these youth voices were speaking up and surely it ended up being the case, Mark, that, you know, we had 800,000 people show up in Washington, D.C., Oh, I thought you maybe meant at the FCNL headquarters there. (laughs) Well, wouldn't that have been great? So we were really happy to be able to not only open our doors and greet people physically as they came here, and we we had representatives from six different yearly meetings, which was really exciting and interesting to share and worship with Quakers from afar. And we also were able to develop a little half flyer that we printed out over 2,000 of these, and, and Quakers took these on the march and, and distributed them. It's a flyer that I can also make available to friends here on this show, just go to our fcnl.org website, and it's basically a preparing for post-March advocacy. So this little PDF actually made its way around the country at the various, what, 300 different marches that were happening around the world. I think this probably made its way to at least a dozen other marches. So that was really exciting, too, that we could see that we're saying, you know, it's great to show up and be part of community, and then what? And then what? And you're very poised to be ready to do something about that. Again, the building that the Friends Committee on National Legislation has in Washington, D.C., faces on, I think that's the Senate building I saw right across the street, right? Yes. We are probably 20 feet away from the Senate Heart Building. And the physical impact of, of Quakers 
is quite astounding. If friends have a chance to come and visit Washington, D.C., absolutely stop by 245 2nd Street Northeast and come visit your, this is your home. This is your place on Capitol Hill for everything to do with policy and advocacy and building a world we seek as friends. So, so it's, it's really amazing to actually see that we, we just expanded this space so that we are now not simply um, office space. We actually have this Quaker Welcome Center, as you said. We're actually holding weekly Witness Wednesday lobby trainings and silent reflection. And we have a place now to receive friends who want to come in and want to learn, like, how do I lobby on gun violence? And, And we'll hook you up with a young fellow or a lobbyist, and we will take you to the steps. And then after an hour, you just walk those 20 feet across the street, and you go and you visit your members of Congress. Let me be clear about something. This is going out to 33 stations nationwide. You know, people all over the U.S. are hearing this, and some of them may not even have any idea what Quakers are. This isn't limited to people who are Quakers to come and participate in this, is it? Oh, no. I mean, the Friends Committee on National Legislation is governed by Quakers and and was started by Quakers, but I would say maybe 40% of our grassroots constituents are Quaker and 60% are Friends of Friends. You know, we want to perceive truth and we want to consider, you know, what kind of world we want to live in. And we think that this, you know, is something that concerns all of us. You know, how do we embrace truth and justice? So if this speaks to you, we're your place. So just give me an idea of what you actually did on the 24th or probably on the 23rd and 25th as well. I mean, I I don't assume it just stopped there, but what physically happened there? Yeah, well, one of our lobbyists, Jose Wass, who's our criminal justice and election integrity lobbyist, he actually did some work beforehand with some lobby training with an interface group. That was on Thursday, and we opened the doors on Saturday, and we began with worship early in the morning, and Steve Chase, who's been a longtime friend of Pendle Hill, led worship. We had several other traveling ministers hold the space for friends who were coming in and out of the rally, and that was uh, Christina Keefe Perry of New England Yearly Meeting and Fresh Conference Meeting and Gabby Savory Bailey of New York Yearly Meeting. And we really wanted to make sure that whatever was happening outside, we were holding the space inside for us to garner strength and to settle in and to see what was arising as we gathered in worship. So that was really pretty wonderful. We also had stand-up lobby training, 15-minute stand-up lobby training with Andre Gabo, who is our program associate, who is working specifically on this portfolio. And, you know, he was able to really say to friends coming in, like, here are your talking points. Here's a sample call script. When you leave here, you can call your member of Congress. And here's a sample letter to the editor. And so he made sure that friends knew who were here that it only takes a few minutes to reach out to your member of Congress and do that in a weekly manner. And it makes a difference. We coordinated with William Penn, who had about 600 people stopping by for hospitality. They're very close to the march to the rally points. And so we were really happy that William Penn also had people coming in the door here. And we coordinated with the Friends Meeting of Washington, who was extending hospitality to approximately 45 people from around the country, making sure that they also had the same materials that we had here at the Quaker Welcome Center. And, and the lobbyist who I spoke of earlier, Jose Wass, he, he was there for the day. So 
We feel that we held a small space here in terms of this 800,000. You know, we're relatively, you know, a small group, and yet we know that the ripple effect is so incredible when one friend can actually reach out to another handful of friends, use these materials, and commit to a weekly two-minute phone call or email to a member of Congress. You know, let's multiply that. This is impactful. What impact are you seeing of the march of the whole movement by the youth and of all the lobbying that the Friends Committee and National Legislation and other folks are doing of Congress? What movement are we seeing? That's a really good question. You know, we're at a tricky place where we're expecting midterm elections to be something that Congress and indeed the nation is really focused on right now. It's highly unlikely that Congress is going to pass a whole lot of legislation between now and the midterm elections. So that seems a little bit disheartening, right, on one hand. And yet, this is a pivotal time for friends to start to extend the cry for comprehensive gun violence prevention strategies to all of those who are up for re-election and all of those who are candidates. So establishing a firm ground right now with the midterm elections in plain sight is a tremendously powerful place from friends to operate. You know, we take the long-haul approach here at Friends Committee on National Legislation. This is not going to be easy, and we're we're not comfortable saying that gun violence prevention is really dependent on an assault weapons ban only, right? We, this is very complicated, and this extends to so many different parts of our national agenda. So we have to be in this for the long haul. So in a roundabout way, I'm saying we need to keep up the conversation. We need to keep up the pressure, and we need to show up and vote. So that is what is happening right now with the youth movement. It is getting out the vote. And for politicians, this is what counts. So this is now the next move that needs to happen with the youth movement. We need to register young people to vote. They need to talk to the candidates and local politicians, and they need to let them know, I am going to vote. This is important to me, and you will see my vote when I visit the polls in the midterm elections. And the Friends Committee on National Legislation, can it deal with elections? Is that okay? I mean, you're you're lobbying Congress, but is there some kind of a rule that you're not supposed to participate in elections, or is that stupid? Yeah, <laughs> we are nonpartisan, and that is really important to the integrity of our organization, right? As friends, we talk to everybody. It's important to talk to members of Congress, and it's important to talk to the candidates, and we're preparing questions for candidates for all people to bring to the town halls, to bring up in your phone calls, to your emails, to even think about holding your own town hall in your meeting or church and invite your candidates and say, what are you going to do about preventing gun violence in a comprehensive manner? So, you know, we are very much encouraging people to identify what are the important issues. We will have helpful guidelines to help people discern what they want to lift up with their candidates. And we think we can have some mechanisms to help friends also address these issues in public venues and written venues. You're doing amazing work there, Christine. 
how did you feel at the march itself on that day? Were you feeling centered, excited, transported, angry, frustrated? What emotions were going through you on the 24th of March? You know, I was primarily anticipating, you know, I had no clue how many people were really going to show up, you know, was it going to be safe? I was concerned for public safety as well, for the people who are coming to march. And yet I was holding out, I guess, this vision that we are creating space right now for something truly remarkable to happen. So, in fact, we brought out our, our chalk and our friend in residence, Joey Hartman Dow, who's a, who's a young artist from Philadelphia, she actually started chalking up the whole sidewalk in front of the Senate Heart Building, not on their side, but on our side. We had poster sign making. We had worship going on throughout the day. So I don't know. We, we were here feeling that this is an opportunity and a joyful opportunity. And, and so we were creating that kind of atmosphere here. But I would say going into the march, you know, I had to – not kind of give way to feelings of anxiety and fear, which is so easy to do in this current environment that we live in. I'm really being candid about that, too. Um, I love the fact that FCNL had a big banner, 12-foot banner, facing the Senate building saying, Quakers, silent in worship, loud on gun violence. And (laughs) that was, like, really awesome. I'm going to say it again. You know, so that was like what we were lifting up, you know, Quakers, silent in worship, loud against gun violence. Well, thank you for being a force for leading out the voice, for enabling that, bringing people together, organizing them, getting them to cross the street and talk to folks in the Senate and training them how to do that effectively. I'm going to talk to you in just a few months down the road, and we'll catch at length what the Friends Committee on National Legislation is doing. The website for the group, by the way, is fcnl.org, all kinds of information there. Christine Ashley has been our guest today for Spirit and Act talking about the March for Our Lives, which she helped do some of the organization on. Thank you so much for putting that movement together there, and thank you for being you, Christine. Oh, I am so looking forward to meeting those of you who are listening. It has never been more important than now to rise and resist, and we're doing it. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. That was Christine Ashley, Quaker Field Secretary for FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation. I hope you've been inspired by all three of today's guests with such different stories, all adding to the transformation of our country in relation to gun violence. Next week, we'll be focusing on Earth Day awareness, but in two weeks, we'll be back with three more guests, two of them high school seniors, inspiring by their activism around the March for Our Lives. A big thank you to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 